Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Marcus Lehman to the show. Marcus Lehman serves as the CEO of CalWave Power Technologies, Inc. Marcus founded CalWave in 2014 and uses his experience in systems engineering, energy systems, and entrepreneurship to lead a diverse team of engineers, advisors, and industry partners to unlock the vast and steady carbon-free power from ocean waves. Prior to CalWave, Marcus held research positions at UC Berkeley, Mechanical Engineering, the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, and was a project lead at the Cyclotron Road Program. Marcus, how are you doing today? Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. Marcus, thank you for joining. Marcus, before we dive into, pun intended, CalWave, I'd like to go back. You're originally from Germany, and if I did my research right, you were part of the band and chorus. What instrument did you play? Oh, wow. You went back (laughs) actually quite a bit. I played tenor saxophone, initially alto, but then, um, yeah, I wanted to something a little more uh, deeper and I went to tenor. And I'm asking because I have three daughters and one plays the bassoon, one plays a euphonium, and one plays an oboe. So I was curious as to what you played specifically in the big band. Yeah, sorry to hear that for you or you have a big <laughs> It It's been quite a journey. You know, when they first start out, that first six weeks, it sounds like I have a dying elephant in the house. But then slowly after that, it progresses well. Yeah, but I actually, looking back, I, I really appreciated that experience. And I have a child, a one-year-old son now myself. So I, I'm really hoping that he'll pick up an instrument one day. But kind of self-taught guitar over time. So it's just a more, um, I think, yeah, it, saxophone by itself without all that big band background uh, doesn't feel as full as it used to. (laughs) Now tell me, just a personal curiosity, you know, you've got an engineering background. Do you see a connection between music and engineering? There's certainly something to be said, especially music where people collaborate together and there's certain rules and, you know, language essentially you, you follow to make that collaboration possible. And that's very analogous in, in engineering and music, I would say. Yep. And, and, you know, there's some some theory and structure behind it, uh, fundamentally defined by physics. Um, so I think, yeah, people collaborating, being creative, um, but still working together, constrained by physic, physical uh, parameters. Um, I think that's certainly uh, comparable. What drew you to engineering? It's a good question. I, I grew up in a family where everyone is coming from a law background and they always looked at me strange because I just didn't spend too much time with books and I just like to be outdoor and build things. So it must have just been in me or I, I got really lucky that my parents had a nice garden and so I could just 
be outside, explore, build stuff. Um, and yeah, going back, actually, my grand granddad um, was the inventor of the hub spoke. Um, so in, in bikes, they have uh, the hub spoke gears that are inside the wheel, not outside. They have some advantages, uh, haven't really dominated the market due to cost and weight and so on. But yeah, from a you know durability and and um, low maintenance perspective that there was some merits to it so that that was the furthest i had to go back to find engineering so it's it's hard to say i just really like to build things and then just had a natural strength in math and physics and then during my last years of physics we had to pick up a, a special project towards the end write a thesis about it and that's where I really just naturally picked something where I could build and, and don't have to, you know, go into the deep theory of uh, <laughs> nuclear stuff. And that just happened to be a solar race car. And yeah, that really got me introduced to renewables and yeah, helped me to to make decisions or guide my uh, my career, career path from there on. And what about the influence from your dad regarding sailing? Yeah, that is true. I mean, that, that comes along with uh, being out on the water and in the elements and in nature. Um, but you know, like our mechanics uh, professor in, in mechanical engineering always said, if you if you're good in sailing, or, or the other way around, if you're good in mechanics, you're also good in sailing. So just being you know out there using mechanics for propulsion and, and the forces of nature uh, to to move us forward and. You know, we've been using that for many, many years, uh, exploring the, the oceans. Um, and yeah, I think that certainly gave me some hands-on experience in using the forces of nature for uh, trying to tame them for, for your will. I used to do some sailing when I was in Boy Scouts a long, long time ago. And I, I feel like it's, you know, analogy or metaphor for life being able to harness, like you said, perhaps nature or situations and being able to use them to propel yourself forward. Yeah, that's a, that's a good um, comparison. So let's transition from sailing to CalWave. Can you give us an overview of CalWave and your role at the organization? Yeah, I would love to. Um, CalWave Power Technologies, our vision is really to unlock the power of the ocean to secure a clean energy future. So our mission is to provide the most reliable and cost-effective technology to harness wave energy to secure that clean energy future. Mm, I started the company together with um, yeah, um, co-founders um, out of UC Berkeley and um, then the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab that supported us and they currently serve as the CEO for the company. Now, I think you've been immersed in this research or working with waves for a little over 10 years. What are some of the aha moments you've had along the way? Quite a bit. You know, it's uh, it attracted us from an intellectual perspective because so far we hadn't really seen a dominant design. And I had a engineering and business background. So when I started my initial visiting research position at Berkeley, I kind of already had a foot in both worlds, kind of the startup and uh, the climate, uh, climate or clean tech space. Uh, I mean, now it's it's called climate. Back then, it was clean tech, um, 1.0 at that time. And so, um, I've always seen it from a, you know, from a pure um, systems engineering perspective. How do we define a architecture? Um, you know, I studied wind and hydro, and 
which types of turbines make sense and what kind of conditions and so on. So in general, it was fascinating from an intellectual and engineering perspective, um, finding that dominant design, but then also from an economics perspective and wider societal impact uh, the technology can have. Um, so I think these were certainly the lenses I've been always looking at it um, in various phases from research to then um, now on a commercial track. And so I think AHA was really, you know, we started out with a shallow water system inspired by a certain mud phenomena that vibrates and extracts energy really effectively. And that looked very promising um, from a pure technical absorption perspective. But then looking more at the bigger picture, the full life cycle of a power plant, looking at all the primary and secondary requirements of the renewable power plant that really informed how we changed the design over time. Um, so there wasn't a one specific aha moment, um, but just gradual insights that led us to improve and pivot and, and adjust the um, technology to arrive at something that is comparable to the modern wind turbine that can be manufactured, installed onshore, offshore, and is robust, reliable. So these were really, um, yeah, I think the main criteria we've been looking for. There were some aha moments where in the very beginning, you know, we just intuitively built things. So the very first prototype, I just kind of cranked out in a weekend uh, over Thanksgiving. Actually, it's coming up uh, <laughs> my, my anniversary of doing rapid prototyping because um, I read about this concept um, and the professor initially signed me a super theoretical topic similar to end of my high school, but I was really more <laughs> interested into the applied side of things. So I just built this concept from him and then showed it to him a little later. And I, I, my hope was that, you know, that being his concept, he would like it to see, see it in, um, in the real world, in the tank. So that was certainly a aha moment, just taking that, you know, membrane type concept and then actually putting it into a prototype pretty quickly without a lot of planning and engineering just by intuition. But then very opposite, further down the line when we really arrived at architecture and, um, you know, were able to simulate things, we, we found some insights that intuition would not allow anymore. You know, we already had worked on this for five, six years and our CTO being a brilliant engineer from the moment I met him, his master thesis was probably the best master thesis that our group has ever seen, or at least under my supervision. And, um, you know, we've developed a lot of intuition for results and engineering in the space, but the tools we've developed now, the, the advanced simulations and numerics, they gave us results that were beyond intuition. And that's kind of, that was really an aha moment that also led us to, you know, building the confidence that now is a really good time to bring this technology to market because we have tools that even five, 10 years, no one really had at their disposal. So before we transition to the actual prototype and unit, can you give us some data regarding waves, wave energies, just how much, just what the potential is? Yeah, that's one of the main motivators for us is really it's the largest unused renewable resource in the world for the U.S., the Department of Energy has a resource assessment really showing um, it could, yeah, the practical resource potential could meet up to 40% of electricity demand. Mm, and yeah, in the most recent um, 
yeah, um, report, they yeah, highlighted that for um, among all ocean energy, it's about 60% um, of the total. It's, you know, 2,500 terawatt hours per year. So big numbers. I know you like uh, BTU and the like. So, you know, wave energy is um, yeah, over 1,000 terawatt hours um, of resource potential available with the great benefits that it's very dense, um, 60 times comparable to wind and solar. So the amount of space and just material we need. So the the IPCC, International Panel on Climate Change, forecasted from a life cycle emissions perspective, because we're using such a high energy dense resource, it can actually be one of the lowest sources of um, clean energy. So you know, we, we just get more energy out of the same ton of steel, um, simply speak. And um, next to that, we can produce at night and winter times. So these are all some of the, the software qualifying features of the resource that make it. And then as we know, renewable energy is a transmission problem. Um, there is a lot of, you know, we always see these charts with a tiny fraction of the Sahara desert, you can power the world, but you can, it's, you have to transmit it. It's, you know, how mm -hmm. do we get the electricity from where, it, where the resources to where the people are. And so in wave energy, the beauty is that it essentially travels without any losses and it's brought to our coastlines where, you know, globally in the U S the same, um, that's main target of migration are the coastlines, major met metropolis are always on on harbors or rivers. And in the US, I think the stat is that 50% of the population lives within 50 miles of the coastline. So having that, you know, very dense energy resource right where the consumers are, it makes it very attractive. So for those that aren't familiar with the CalWave unit, can you illustrate for us what it looks like and briefly how it works and also how we would capture the energy generated by the unit? Yeah, so as mentioned, we've evolved the technology over time um, quite a bit based on the learnings and early techno-economic assessments. The technology we've now arrived is called the X-Wave architecture we've patented, and that operates fully submerged. So it's essentially a, a buoy that sits under the water surface, interacts with the waves, and then we can extract energy very effectively, efficiently, so we can absorb energy from all degrees of freedom. That means wherever the buoy moves, we can harness that power. And then inside we have you know, drivetrains similar to a wind turbine that allow us to slow down the system. So you can really imagine it like an electric car going down a hill. If you put it on a brake, it produces electricity. And so, yeah, from, from a fundamental principle, it's exactly that. And how do we get that energy to land? So there are a couple of use cases. One is yeah, exporting it to land similar to offshore wind. So we can use the same um, subsea technology, the cable technology. We're hoping, planning to actually use the existing offshore wind or other subsea cable facility. Um, we also looked into applications where power offshore is needed. So we can power offshore platforms or offshore hydrogen generation hubs. Um, so there are also opportunities to use the power where um, it's produced. Now, the ocean waters and seawaters can do a lot of damage, degradation, erosion, etc. Your unit, what kind of lifespan do you think it might have? And what are some of the challenges you found with working in the you know, deep sea waters? Yeah, that's always 
the first question we get just from an intuitive perspective, oh yeah, there's corrosion and, and biofouling. It's actually been less of a concern for us. Um, we're using proven technology from offshore, um, offshore industries, oil and gas, offshore wind. So the same coating and um, yeah, corrosion protection technology, as well as anti-biofouling um, paints. And so it, the question or the approach is not like, how long do we think it's going to last? It's more like, how long do we design it for? And in general, our design or product life is um, designed for 20 years. And yeah, we have a planned uh, maintenance of about every five years. Have you ever been diving underneath one of your units? Not ourselves, but we had um, dive inspections during our um, pilot deployment in San Diego. Any learnings from that experience? It certainly gave us the confidence to stay out longer. So um, when we won the award from the DOE in 2017 um, to build and deploy a scaled demonstrator, um, the goal was really to deploy for six months. And we had anticipated, budgeted about two interventions. So like removing the device, bringing it to shore, inspecting, fixing things, bringing it back out. For this deployment, we ultimately were out for 10 months with no interruption. So um, that was really a positive surprise. And I think having an eye, you know, we had a lot of internal sensors and uh, even video, um, but having some outside inspection um, visually helped us yeah, also to have the confidence to just keep running for the, the entire 10 months. And just for a visual, can you give us some idea, dimension, size of the unit, and then based on the size, how much power can be generated? Yeah, so we have different product lines. We have the X Micro and the X Utility. And currently, we're constructing the X Micro design for microgrids, um, that's the name. And that ranges a little bit on the local resource um, and, and some tuning parameters. But yeah, we expect it to be in the 100 to 300 kilowatt range um, with about a 50% capacity factor. The X utility, yeah, we're expecting in the megawatt class um, as the yeah, first level. But then similar to wind turbines, we can scale um, the system to higher power ratings. And how big is the unit itself? The physical dimension um, of the um, X um, micro yeah, is in the in the 10 digits meters and then the, um, the X utility is not much bigger. So um, imagine, yeah, in the 10, 20 meter ranges. Do you have exterior facing cameras on your units? We, for the San Diego pilot, we did had a yeah, um, outboard camera as well as inboard um, just for yeah, having um, an eye on um, a specific connection um, to the device to make sure that is um, in place. I was just kind of thinking out loud and wondering how much interesting information your units could start gathering. Yeah, we did have some environmental monitoring. Um, you know, we we were able to monitor ourselves if there was um, interaction with marine wildlife. But we also had the Pacific Northwest National Lab under their Triton initiative conducting a third party um, environmental assessment. And yeah, that was really encouraging. Um, that yeah, these five uh, areas of risk that um, you know exist for all marine renewables, if it's tidal, offshore wind, or wave energy, yeah, that our system was really um, well acceptable and and is able to mitigate all these risks. It must be quite interesting to see 
what all you encounter down there? Yeah, I mean, San Diego being a little warmer waters and we were closer to shore, it's certainly more bioactive than, let's say, further out where, you know, a lot of offshore wind goes out pretty far um, in California. I'm, I forgot the latest um, distances, but it's pretty far out um, where, yeah, there's just less activity in general. So switching gears here, you've been on this journey 10 years or so. What are some of the most valuable lessons you've learned about yourself? About myself or <laughs> about the industry? Um, More about you. Yeah, it's certainly, and that was my hope when I started this, that um, it's a great opportunity or if not one of the best um, yeah, early career path to really grow on a um, personal and, and professional level. Um, there's certainly, you know, we... We always jokingly say internally we're, we're hiring mathletes, um, so, you know, um, intellectual athletes. And um, that also from a, not only from an engineering, but also from a management perspective and from an impact perspective, really it's been a, um, a very exciting and unique journey um, to grow. Um, and I think that also attracted uh, co-founders and now team members is that, yeah, opportunity, you know, we've gotten a lot of support and resources we're extremely grateful for that it's not common for let's say you know our team was right out of school um out of university that we get that level of resources and trust so i think yeah um our supervisor for for, for our um, phd told us that you know he has not gone through that full life cycle as we've done in it or in general, you, you only do that once as an engineering career because you, it's not because you don't have the time or you don't want to. It's just you might not get the opportunity that often to go from, you know, napkin to advance to simulations to prototype to actual full build and now upscale and commercialization. So that's a very, um, you know, unique um, position to be in um, with a new impactful technology and really creating a, a new industry here for the U.S. And now with your one-year-old son, you have two startups. Pretty much, yeah. How do you balance your time? That's certainly the last year been <laughs> more challenging. Just have to be more disciplined on when I stop working. <laughs> you know, in the past we had debates, discussions that just went over. And now we just have to be more disciplined about uh, meeting agendas and sticking with time and making sure I can pick him up from daycare in time and things like that. <laughs> Working within constraints, right? Exactly. But it, it also helps that, you know, if you have time constraints um, in project management, they always told us that the project or a task would always spend um, on how much time you give it. So um, that was specifically for, for software engineers that if you, you know, tell them to code something and you ask them how long it's going to take, they give you a pretty long time. So if you give them a month, it's going to take a month. If you give them a week, it's going to take a week. So adding some time constraint might actually help in, in coming to conclusions. Yeah, I think it's called Parkinson's Law. I'm not familiar with that. Well, yeah. Absolutely. Any any a task will take the time allotted to it, something along those lines. Mm, Parkinson's law, okay. So right now you're hiring for what roles essentially? Yeah, so we're currently in a really exciting phase where we're upscaling and building a new drivetrain test facility out. So we're actively looking for an electrical engineer 
as well as a, a mechanical and then yeah, more specifically for us really in offshore operations so anyone that has done offshore projects in the past um, can help us you know plan and um, interface with offshore operators and um, yeah, help us to um, install the next unit but then also future farms and you're also seeking partnerships is that correct yeah, we have a active um, corporate partnership program um, that allows um, corporates to work with us in a, a formal, informal way. For example, we have a MOU with Baker Hughes with their growth hub to explore um, yeah, joint opportunities and projects in the offshore space, um, specifically decarbonizing, digitizing um, yeah, existing or new offshore assets. Now, you mentioned you're out in San Diego. It's probably because you're located there geographically already. What other areas around the United States do you think would be ideal for CalWAVE? So we're actually located still in the the Berkeley, uh, San Francisco Bay Area. Um, San Diego, we've selected for our pilot um, because the Scripps Institution of Oceanography, as part of UC San Diego, they hosted us there. It was a really good yeah, pilot side, and they had the pier and the cable going out on the pier. So that was an ideal location um, to um, yeah, partner, and, and they were the landowner and host essentially. Um, in the US, pretty much all along um, the coastlines, um, but yeah, most energetically, really being um, yeah, um, uh, Northern California, Oregon, uh, Washington, Alaska. But also the territories, so um, Hawaii, Guam, um, yeah, these are some of these remoter locations where um, electricity prices are very high or energy in general. And so having a, a local energy dense resource under space constraints um, of islands um, is, is very attractive there as well. I think I was watching one of your videos and you talked about the benefits to island nations and you mentioned cost of electricity. Can you elaborate? Yeah, certainly. I mean, the you know, majority of our primary electricity globally is still based on fossil fuels that are most often than not consumed, not where they are generated. So they need to be shipped in and for, you know, with all energy, it's economies of scale um, business. So for islands, they often don't have the infrastructure to do their own refining. So they have to import already refined fuel um, that is very expensive. And then of course, the more remote, the longer the transportation, the more expensive um, the fuel becomes. And so using a local resource um, to produce you know, power that can charge EVs or potentially even produce hydrogen for local ferries or other industrial applications or energy storage, um, that is really um, yeah, a, a very, um, you know, it's, it's very in line with our SDG goals in, in helping these communities become energy independent. Now, we mentioned you've been on the journey 10 years. Let's fast forward. It's now, let's call it 2033. So 10 years from now, if Fast Company, Forbes, Wall Street Journal, pick your favorite publication, were to write a headline or perhaps even a short paragraph regarding CalWave, what would you like it to read? Yeah, something along the lines that with CalWave's technology, we're now really too we're now able to transition to 100% clean energy supply. It's exactly the the last mile, you know, the last um, 50, 25, the last 10% to really decarbonize the grid will be the hardest. And so that's where really we 
hope to come in and, and help um, to yeah, um, yeah, help to what's that deep decarbonization of the electricity market. Now, last question, and you know, for your journey, mechanical engineering, PhD, you mentioned. I think if I'm reading in between the lines, you know, going from theory to application and then launching a company, if you were to share some advice or words of wisdom with, let's say, aspiring entrepreneurs, people that are maybe going on a similar journey to yours, what are perhaps one, two, three pieces of advice you would share? Yeah, we often hear, you know, in general wisdom to, to follow your passion. Mm, I think that, that is true. You have to develop a, a certain passion and interest and motivation to, to keep you going. At the same time, you also want to make sure that, you know, you, you apply the filter or lens of um, impact and, and being realistic. Um, so, you know, being strategic about where can you make um, the biggest impact? So where there is still room for or the largest need. And I think that's often um, could be a source of innovation just to look at underserved areas or underutilized areas. And that's where as an individual, you know, like if people already or many people, big corporations already working on a problem for you as an individual to really make a big difference. And that comes with an entrepreneurial opportunity is less likely. But, you know, going somewhere, they always say you, you got to skate where the puck is going. So looking forward and where things are going and, and exploring underserved areas technologically or business um, that certainly um, combined with with passion and uh, um, where you really see value and in terms of impact um, i think these three things together are um, a good guideline well i know i said last question but since you mentioned where the puck is going do you see any other opportunities right now that perhaps might be ripe for innovation specifically in clean tech that's a good question. I, I think yeah, I get exposed to a lot of broader uh, topics, but more on like I hear other startups pitches and conferences mm -hmm. and so on. I think overall I see a opportunity of, you know, shared infrastructure, shared locations. So just using, because at the moment as things are new, everything is kind of isolated and siloed and people just want to make their kit working or financeable and so on. But that, you know, for example, if these technologies then are all mature, you can all bring them together and they're being complementary. That's, I think, a very interesting area. So just anticipating that these technologies will mature in 10, 20 years and then seeing how we could combine them, put them on the same grid export or on the same uh, physical asset or even on the same project financing and insurance and so on. So just, um, yeah, essentially streamlining um, how things can come together um, once they are mature. I think that's an area that, that's quite interesting. So can you give me a concrete example? In our case, it's, you know, people are building offshore wind farms now because the wind industry has matured enough that the turbines become reliable enough. And then they're laying substations and cables. A wave farm would look very very similar. So same substation, same export cable. There are a lot of studies and analysis from Stanford and, and Scotland that actually have seen the benefit of putting them on the same export cable. And then you could, you know, as I said, you already have a, a platform there. So you could um, produce hydrogen there when, um, let's say, the grid is... Um, um, the, the grid is congested and you cannot export. So we're seeing increase in curtailment in wind and solar. So, you know, making the most use out of limited space and resources. Um, yeah, that's kind of a, an um, opportunity.
So going back to earlier in our conversation, you mentioned ecosystem. So ecosystem thinking. Correct. Yeah, we're seeing you know a lot of offshore wind, as you mentioned. It is also showing now that offshore structures, for example, introduce um, growing space for coral and and other things. So it it is personally, I, I read an interesting book about um, ecosystem restoration value. So monetizing the value of a local um, ecosystem to the wider community and industry that will certainly help to um, yeah, to restore it um, uh, what we've damaged at times if not you know they're like a lot of in our in the ocean space a lot of dead zones where just nothing lives anymore um, so I think if we would have quantified the value of this area that would have potentially not happened um, to that extent what was the name of the book Oh, I have to go. It was from a actually it was a marine biologist that spent some time at Scripps. I think the nature of nature, if I'm not mistaken. That's okay. I'll research it. Yeah. Well, Marcus, I really appreciate your time today. I wish you all the best with CalWave, and I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thanks for the conversation and having us on. Yeah, and looking forward to being in touch. Thank you, Marcus. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.